Hey there folks, it's me, Michael Bach, your Diversity Dude, and this is Talking to Canadians. As a person who lives with an invisible disability, in my case depression, I have a big place in my heart for people with physical disabilities, for what I think are obvious reasons. Being physically able-bodied, I feel like I have a role to play in leveling the playing field for others, both literally and figuratively. Today I talk with one such person, but he really doesn't need my help. Kevin Rempel has an amazing story. He was in a terrible accident that left him paralyzed and using a wheelchair. He was told he would never walk again. But that wasn't going to work for Kevin. He stared adversity in the face and beat the odds. He went on to not only walk again, but became a Paralympian athlete in sledge hockey and now runs the Sledge Hockey Experience, a company that provides corporate team building experiential opportunities through the game of sledge hockey. A quick warning about today's conversation, it contains language that some listeners may find difficult to hear. Kevin Rempel, welcome to Talking to Canadians. Thanks for having me. So, Remps, may I call you Remps? I don't know why of I want to do that. Call me um, Remps. Thank you. So, you were paralyzed in a motocross accident in 2006 at the age of how old were you? 23. 23 years old. And you persevered and learned to walk again and went on to become part of Team Canada competing in the 2014 Sochi Olympics in sledge hockey. Let's talk about it. Yes, sir. So uh, let, help me understand this. Okay, so you're 23 years old um, and you end up paralyzed because you were riding a motorcycle, which is the most foolish thing to do. <laughs> uh, walk me through that. Give me, give me, a, give me a, bit of a, a bit of a storyline here. How did it all happen? When I was a kid, I played hockey and stick, other stick and ball sports like soccer and baseball, but really wasn't a big fan of them. And my neighbors got dirt bikes for Christmas one year when I was about 10 years old. And finally, by the age of 12, I convinced my dad to allow me to buy a dirt bike. And that instantly became my passion. And then, you know, back in the day, you know, X Games was just emerging at the time. And freestyle motocross came into the picture about doing stunts on your dirt bike. And that became my dream. So from the age of 12 until 23, like, I was just pursuing that, you know, a backyard rider and never was necessarily going to make it to the world stage, but I wanted to be good locally. I traveled to BC when I was 20, when I came home, decided to go for it, started my own company in 2006. And on July 1st of 06, formed my first show ever. And that went awesome. And then two weeks later at another show, I showed up, uh, wasn't mentally focused. I was definitely pissed off and in a bad mood. And from that lack of focus, I crashed on the first jump of the day, not even trying a trick. And as a result, I ended up breaking my back, pelvis, and ribs and was instantly paralyzed. Well, and there's a commercial for motorcycles. <laughs> <laughs> That's a short story about like how I came to like live yeah. with my injury. So you're... 23, it's 2006, you're paralyzed, you're told you're never going to walk again. Uh, what's that, like, give me the, the impression of how, where was your head at that point? So the truth, you know, of course it was like devastating and, and such, but the honest answer, like when I, in my keynote speeches that I give 
talk about that moment because people always ask, like, what were you thinking? And the true story is my friend Chris was filming the day. Like, we would always film our shows as much as we could. And so he captured the crash on film, and but he, I'm on the ground, and he turns the camera off and runs over to me. And when he finally gets through, like, the paramedics and everything, he looks at me. He's like, I'm on the ground in excruciating pain. Like, there's, it's like there's a knife twisting in my back. Mm-hmm. And Chris leans down. He puts his hand out to me and he looks at me and he says, Rems, I love you, man. And in that exact moment, I reached up and I grabbed Chris's hand. And as soon as I grabbed his hand, I looked at him. His nickname was Mudman. I said, Mudman, you better be filming this. Jesus. <laughs> the first words out of my mouth were, and, and all he said, he's like, oh, yeah, shit, sorry. And he backs up and he turns the camera back on. <laughs> and that was it. And and the honest answer is that it wasn't, I didn't have like the tagline. Like today I talk about being the hero of your own movie and the hero mindset. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, what I knew is this was just the beginning of another chapter of my script, of my movie. And the writers that I looked, the people who I looked up to most, especially at that time, were other writers who had broken both of their legs or a couple of wrists and come back and win an X Games gold medal. They got back on the bike. And I was no different that I just viewed this as a part of the process and I'm going to be back. And yes, it's bad, but it's not over yet. Wow. So you're laying there on the ground, paramedics around you and you just your whole mindset was just like i'm i'll I'll be back yeah really that's incredible and i i chat with people often you know i'll acknowledge like i think one of my biggest um i don't know i don't want to say the word quality but like one of the one of the things that have like worked in my favor a lot over the years of my life is being naive because i was definitely naive to think that i would bounce back as quickly as I'd hoped from that. I mean, it took years. Yes. Yeah. So t- tell us like from that moment to say team Canada, how, what, what's the journey? I mean, the short story is after I was injured, doctors say you'll never walk again. Luckily I was an incomplete paraplegic, not a complete para. So I only fractured and dislocated my vertebrae. It didn't sever my spinal cord. Six weeks later, I wiggled my first toe, four months rehab, 10 months wheelchair, two months cane, back on the bike in a year, but it was like three to four years to learn to really get around and have this strength and stamina as I do today. And during that recovery time, when I was still using a wheelchair, I was at uh, wheelchair basketball. And I thought at the time, the only Paralympic sport was either wheelchair racing, or finally I discovered basketball about at the two year mark after my injury. And this other kid named Kevin also with a spinal cord injury rolls up beside me. And he goes, hey, hey, have you ever uh, tried sledge hockey before? And I say, no, what's that? And he goes, it's real sick. Where do I sign up? <laughs> I love that. And that was my that was how I discovered this sledge hockey existed. Wow. Yeah. So tell us a bit about winning the 2013 World Championship and receiving a bronze medal in Sochi. What was that like for you? It was it was an awesome journey. You know, it's weird to of course reflect on our lives sometimes when you think about what you had dreamt as a kid and how your life pans out and 
my dream was to be a professional athlete, get paid for it, travel the world through motocross. And all of those dreams I had that were crushed through motocross became something I could live through sledge hockey. And, you know, going to Japan three times, we were there when the tsunami happened. Um, we've been to Russia twice and I went to the Northwest. One of my favorite trips was the Northwest Territories uh, in Canada. You know, traveling was really amazing. And, you know, we won the Worlds in 2013 after we had lost in 2012. So, like, going from a low to a high and experiencing playing for Canada and being on the world stage at the Sochi Paralympics, you know, those are experiences and memories that uh, I'm so grateful for and will never forget and I'm very proud of. And it's just, was, uh, you know, the hard work ethic that my dad taught me, I just got to transfer and finally into a sport. And it's ironic that I hated hockey as a kid and quit, but, you know, after getting injured and looking at all the Paralympic sport options, I mean, it was actually easy for me to fall back in love with it. And I'm just proud that uh, I can say that I, I've made with a little bit of luck and a lot of hard work, I've been able to make those dreams happen. And, and it didn't end at Sochi and no longer were you on team Canada, but you went to the, uh, was it the 2016 Olympics as, as a, a representative, as a broadcaster for the Paralympic games, didn't you? Yep. Uh, so t- 2018 was Pyeongchang. Uh, oh, it was Pyeongchang. Yep. And yeah. with the Canadian Paralympic Committee, got to go there in a broadcast role for like like they call it digital media. So I was just doing um, like game fo- coverage and game recaps uh, through Facebook, which is great because I'm a definitely, as you know, a social media guy. I love being out there. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. So you mentioned your father. Let's let's talk about your father. Not to be a total bummer, but. He was also paralyzed in an accident, and uh, at the time of, of your accident, he was using a wheelchair. Yeah. How did him being in a wheelchair affect the way you perceived your own injury? My dad taught me how I did not want to be, mm-hmm. is, the, is, the, is the most direct answer. And I, and I want to follow that up by saying my dad was an awesome man. He was an awesome father. And I love the guy and I know that he mm-hmm. loved me and his family, but given how my dad behaved and viewed his life and situation following his injury, which we haven't discussed yet, I'll, I'll get share. Um, it taught me to go the opposite way. So for the people who have yet to hear um, the kicker to my story, along with not only myself being paralyzed is that my dad was four years earlier Um we were out deer hunting, building a tree stand when one of the branches my dad was standing on broke and he fell two stories to the ground, breaking his back and becoming a complete paraplegic just a few years from retirement. So my mom had both husband and son in wheelchairs at the exact same time within a 12 month window or sorry, within a four year mm-hmm. window. And then after my accident within that next year, um, my mom ended up leaving my dad and seven weeks after my mom left, my dad took his own life. Mm-hmm. So when I reflect on that, um, again, going back to like a lot of the speaking that I share, well, like the hero mindset and, you know, we have these um, moments and decisions and actions that we need to take each day and how, and our attitude around those experiences in our lives are what really determine the 
direction of our life and, and how we're going to thrive through adversity versus being defeated by it. And when my dad was injured, he, for example, kept saying the same three things, which were the branch shouldn't have broke. It's not my fault. And life's not mm. fair. And it's true that life might not be fair. And regardless of that, each of us have a, a decision to make in those moments where we feel like we want to give up, where we feel like things aren't fair, about how we're going to handle the situations. And my dad chose to take on a victim mentality to blame the tree, to blame a situation, to focus on what he did not have versus what he does have. Like he focused on the loss of his legs versus the use of his arms. He wasn't a quadriplegic. He didn't have mm -hmm. a brain injury. And from seeing my dad take a victim mentality, he, you know, became very alone, isolated, depressed. He pushed away his friends, negative, pessimistic, and he developed a gambling addiction. And it wasn't the injury that is the reason why my mom left. It was seeing somebody with this, in my opinion, awfully negative attitude for five years and a gambling addiction and seeing that he wasn't willing to change and he wasn't willing to adapt. That is what led to my mom leaving. And I supported mm -hmm. her in that decision. And so seeing my dad through all of that taught me what, uh, how I did not want to be, you know, when I got injured, it's like, I did this to myself. Like my dad could have worn a safety harness. He could have hunted from the ground. He could have climbed a lower tree. He could have done some other forms of safety checks and he didn't. And it's like my dad, me, like I did this to myself. And so when I got hurt, I, you know, we have to accept responsibility for our lives, whether we're responsible for what happened to us or not. And so I said, you know, I'm going to make the best of the situation. I'm going to focus on what I do have. Like if I spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair, how can I live that best life? When I think about, you know, you and I both, we live in this world of people with disabilities and I'm going to speak for myself and I'm going to speak for a lot of the community that I know. There's a lot of people that live with disabilities. I think that um, still live with a victim mentality or they're too cradled and coddled, or they don't think that it's possible for them to live a thriving and fulfilling life in their current situation. And it's entirely possible, but it starts with your mindset. How do you view your life? living with a disability and how do you view you the world around you and and what attitude are you going to take to go out there and attack the world and do something about your situation versus sitting at home like my dad and being pessimistic mm -hmm. about yeah. it? Yeah. I, I don't disagree with you. I think, I, you know, I, I agree that there are some people that choose to live in that negative state, but I also think, you know, the world is really not a friendly place for uh, people who are not able-bodied. And I, I you know, so I can appreciate and understand and see how, um, you know, it can be really hard. I, as somebody who lives with a disability, it's been really hard throughout my life. Uh, there have been very challenging moments when uh, I, I really question things. Um, you know, you clearly have uh, uh, sort of turned that page. You flipped the story, right? You've You've taken... Uh, the example of your father and said, I'm, I'm not going to be like that and clearly gone the extreme other side, uh, which is really laudable and a, a great story. So Kevin, you've written a book called Still Standing. Why don't you tell us about it? Basically, after finishing my hockey career, I knew that I thought that since the day my dad fell from the tree, I had a story, let alone the 
12 years that followed that. So I just chronicled my life. I wrote an autobiography myself. Um, starts from the day, the first chapters of the day my dad fell to a year post Sochi. And yeah, it's still standing. And the subtitle is just when you have every reason to give up, keep going. So are there, are there any things that you can share with our listeners around still standing in the face of adversity? Not that they shouldn't just buy the book, but yeah, I mean, um, you know, what I would share if anyone, let me put it this way. If you listening, if you or anyone you know who is struggling, especially with mental health um, challenges or is um, experiencing suicidal ideation, you know, I really encourage you to read my book for those reasons in the sense that like it's a very raw and honest read. It's, I, I wrote very directly about what those times were like, how challenging they were um, when my dad took his life. And we haven't gone too far into it here, Mike, but like for the audience listening, you know, I've three times been suicidal and I'm super open about it because I've made it through it. I've never harmed myself. And it came down to those moments where I felt like giving up. And what in my situation, it was like, what did I say to myself? in those moments that turned it around. So I didn't take the same route as my dad. And, and that's what my, what my book is all about is, is really walking people through what it was like and to see that they're not alone in their struggles. So what do you say? I mean, you're, you are very open about the struggles you've been through. What do you, you know, what do you say when you're really becoming suicidal? What, what helped you come back from that? So in a case, like after my dad passed away, I mean, it wasn't until a year later, I was dealing with, um, I didn't know it at the time, but I was dealing with an addiction to Percocet. Mm. And from two weeks, I went from like pretty much normal to suicidal. And um, I hope it's not too graphic. I don't think it's too graphic for the viewer or for the listeners, but to be, to be specific, like I was in my kitchen, I had a knife and I was thinking about hurting myself. And when I was there, like at that real close moment, what I said to myself, I mean, I was really upset. I was crying. I had several drinks of alcohol. So I was like, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I was on Percocets too. This is at like 2 AM, you know, like I, I had these, I was in this horrible situation, this horrible moment, but in that moment where I was uh, thinking about it and when I wanted to do it, like the words that I said to myself were, I don't want that to be the ending to my story. Mm-hmm. And the final chapter has not been written yet. And, and it's, it's a pretty clear thought for somebody who was inebriated and, and high on Percocet. Cause I, cause I was thinking, I'm like, my dad, like God bless him, but like, he's remembered for taking it. That's how he's remembered. Right. And I knew that I did not want to be remembered that way. I, cause when, especially for people who have that ideation, you know, especially if they have a friend or someone close to them that have also done it. One of the biggest challenges of the mental thoughts you face are what I experienced and I've heard other people too, is like, well, if they've done it. Well, then I can too. And if, and if I do it, then no one would blame me because it's been tough because they have. And, and I had to fight those mental thoughts. And I remember watching a video by one of the, um, a motivational speaker named Eric Thomas, who I've, I followed many years ago, thoroughly. He um, was talking about his lack of education in his family. 
And he talked about it being almost like a tr tradition of just expect of expecting failure that nobody would do it. And he wanted to break that tradition and he got his GED and went to school and now he's got his PhD. And I, it resonated with me as well as that, like, I don't want to continue a tradition. I don't want to be a part of a tradition that I don't want mm -hmm. to continue in my family. Cause if, if dad did it and I did it, well then that just might make it easier for my sister and my mom to do it. And I don't want that yeah. to happen. Got to break the cycle before yeah. it even starts. So you talk about the hero mindset. What is the, what does that mean to you? What's the hero mindset? It's about focusing on the small things that make a big difference. And it's those moments and decisions and actions, just like I described, you know, when I was thinking about passing away to team Canada moments to entrepreneurial moments right now, as I build my business, like trying to get over the fear of sales and picking up the phone to following up with somebody, to apologizing when you need to apologize to somebody, to admitting when you're wrong. Like every day in our lives, we have these moments where we know that we need to make a decision and take some action that's really going to change the trajectory of our lives. And what we're saying to ourselves in those moments are what really make the difference about whether we do the right thing or and move forward or we stay stuck or we move backward. And, and so I want to try and help illustrate what those moments are for everybody to just dig deeper and what are the challenges that you're going through and how can you adopt the hero mindset in your own life too. It's interesting. It reminds me a lot about um, some of the work that we're doing right now around inclusive leadership and what does it take to be an inclusive leader. And some of the things that you're talking about are very much in that, in that uh, um, vein around humility and courage and honesty um, and words that we think we're we're good with but when we really peel it back and start to examine our own behavior we're not as good as we probably should be yeah it's, it's hard <laughs> those things are hard being being like admitting when you're wrong is a hard thing to do asking for help is a really hard thing to do yeah so I want to talk about where you are today and you started a business, which is how, you know, in tra full transparency, that's how you and I got connected uh, through a mentoring program, uh, your, your sledge hockey experience. So let's talk about that. Tell me about the sledge hockey experience. Yeah. So basically, uh, you know, when I was playing, it was actually at that camp in Northwest in the Northwest territories where we were running one of many community events that we often do in the sport. And I had a moment where I was watching, you know, not just the kids on the ice, but the older demographic, we have like, you know, like the mayor of the city and some business leaders come out. And when they were getting off the ice, I saw this one gentleman slapping his sticks as the Zamboni was coming on the ice, actually like upset complaining. He's like, I don't want to get off the ice yet. And he's like <laughs> banging his sticks. And I don't know why, but in that moment, it just, clicked in my head. I'm like team building. And I just kept banking the ideas for the next several years. And it wasn't just the team building. It's that we need the sport to grow. We need more people involved, um, especially with disabilities, of course. You know, a lot of people don't know that uh, able-bodied people can play at a local level. It's just once you get beyond that, that you need a disability to qualify further for the Paralympics. 
But what we used to do for years was grab one disabled person at a time and say, come play sledge. And I was watching a video by Steve Jobs, which inspired me as he spoke about developing the new Apple computer. He asked himself the question, not how can I build a better computer, but how can I build a better user experience? And so I asked myself the question, not how can I get one more disabled person to, into a sled at a time, but how can I get the rest of Canada to experience our country's favorite sport in a new way? And if I can get the rest of Canada in sleds, and I bring, you know, we bring, bring out groups of uh, 20 people at a time for this half-day corporate team building program. And, you know, if 20 people can all tell 20 people at Thanksgiving dinner or back at the office, and that message spreads to the next family that has somebody who sustains a, an injury in a car accident or is, has a, a daughter or a son who's born with a disability and they get into sledge hockey sooner so they don't wait two years like I had to to discover the sport, that's going to get more players involved. That's going to create a, um, a greater depth of talent to create stronger teams and help put Canada back up on top of the podium, not only bringing gold medals back home, but to grow this beloved sport that we know and really expose everyone else to the sport of sledge hockey. And you actually get people on the ice in the sleds. Like you're, you're, uh, um, uh, yeah, you're, you, you know, players, uh, teams of 20 get on the ice and experience what it's like to be in a sled, right? Yeah, it's, it's super cool. Like we've got a very close, like 50, 50 male, female demographic, um, We've got many people who have never played hockey or skated on ice play before. And I break up the day into about 90 minutes pre-ice, 90 minutes on ice, and then 30 minutes post-ice. We cater the program both before and after. And we have um, you know, some pre-ice games. We have a workshop around some um, activities through diversity and involve sledge hockey. And I'd share my story. And once we get on the ice, the first hour is structured, followed by about 30 minutes of free time. And what you experience on the ice through things like, of course, communication and teamwork, but things like falling down, getting up, re building resiliency, you know, a lot of problem solving skills. You know, you're using two sticks, you're, you're sitting down. Uh, how do you view the challenges that you're faced with, especially when they happen in, the, in an instant, like many disabilities that we for those who acquire them midway through their life, you know, like how do you adapt to change when it happens so quickly? You know, like what's your attitude towards that? And what you experience on the ice reflects back to what we speak about before we get on the ice. And of course then to what you're going to experience back in the workplace. It, it's a pretty impactful uh, experience because people really get to see the world through the eyes of, of another. But it's also important that people understand that you don't have to be like a full complete paraplegic in order to play sledge. You can like you walk now. Um, uh, but there are sort of gradations, I guess, of, uh, of the level of disability and, and there's a bit of a complex formula around things like team Canada and, and the Olymp or Paralympics. But you mentioned something that, that I want to touch on and that's resilience. How do you Kevin Rimple, maintain resilience in the face of adversity by as cliche as it sounds by facing it head on i think that's how you develop resilience in your life and you and you build on it um you know one of my favorite books 
I've ever read in my entire life is titled Resilience by Eric Gretchens. And he's a, a Navy SEAL officer. And he chronicles a story about him and some, his friend nicknamed Walker in the book. After they both served, they come home, resume normal lives. And Walker goes off the deep end. And, you know, he becomes an alcoholic. He gets in bar fights. He ends up in jail. His wife leaves him and he's suicidal. And he messages Eric and he's like, what do I do? And Eric ends up, they, the book chronicles letters that they wrote back and forth to each other as Eric was helping Walker get out of um, this dark, dark place and to rebuild his life. And one of the most impactful statements that I ever read in that book, as he's speaking to Walker, he, he asks him, he says, Walker, do you remember when we were on the, the, the front line in war? He's like, every, you know, every single day we would show up for battle prepared to face whatever was in front of us with resilience, with strength, with courage. And that's just what we woke up to do every single day of our lives. And although you may not be on the battlefield anymore facing those challenges, today when you wake up, your challenge is facing alcohol. Today when you wake up, your challenge is facing rebuilding a relationship with your kids. Today when you wake up, you're facing finding the courage to reapply to a job and craft a resume and learn a new skill as a computer program when you don't have that knowledge in you yet. And as you stood on the front line of battle for war, you're now standing on the front line of battle for your life. And I think that, you know, that stuck with me so well that I think every single day we have to show up in our lives. We're always going to be facing challenges. And every day we decide how we want to show up in this world. And so to develop resilience and to develop resilience, I believe means acting with courage in the face of adversity. It means not having all the answers necessarily. It means not knowing the way. It means not even feeling necessarily confident, but taking action anyway. And I believe that's, that's the, how I have found my biggest teacher in learning how to develop courage and resilience is by facing your fears and, and what you need to deal with daily in your life as quickly as you can head on. Great words. So we always like to uh, finish our interviews with uh, a few fun, light and fluffy questions. So uh, tell me, who are your heroes or heroines? I, I'm going to throw, I'm going to say my mom, number one. You know, when I speak about the hero mindset, I talk about how it's ordinary actions that each of us have in our lives. But my mom, man, she is so extraordinary in my life for all that she's been through and supportive and never questioned me or cut me down for anything that's happened. You know, I'm, I'm really grateful for my mom and, and who she is and everything she's done for me. Um, beyond my mom, there's, at this point in my life, there's not one person. I think about a lot of people on podcasts that I've never met in my life um, who influenced me, like Tim Tim Ferriss and Gary Vaynerchuk and Andy Priscilla and Randall Pitch. And I, I appreciate people like yourself in my life um, who are mentors to me and, and Tim Krause and um, Bill Taggart, you know, just personal friends who have really helped guide me on a one-to-one -one basis in the real stuff in life. Like, it, not just business. It's just, you know, like I have a friend, David Iser in Atlanta, um, who really helped guide me through relationships when I've struggled for years with, with dating and 
Because as a kid, I would totally list off Mike Metzger and Travis Pastrana and Brian Deegan and Tony Hawk as heroes. But, you know, when I deliver my keynote presentations about the hero mindset, um, when, when you look up the definition of a hero in the dictionary, a hero is actually defined as a person who is either admired or idealized for courage, outstanding achievements, or noble qualities. And that's what I'm there for. As When I speak, I want to debunk that myth of what a hero is, per se, because, you know, firefighters, um, EMS workers, soldiers are easily at the top of the list of heroes. But that's what I'm trying to show everyone is that we all have those qualities in us. And it takes us recognizing those. And like I said, going back to courage and being willing to take action to discover that we are just like them in the sense that we, some people are better at other things than others, but we all have the ability to make an impact in our life and in the lives of others. So what's your biggest pet peeve? <laughs> Besides questions I don't know the answers to. Yeah. That <laughs> um, cooking. I hate cooking. You hate cooking. Yes. I wish one of my biggest motivators for being successful in business is to one day, hopefully be able to afford a personal chef is the truth. I hate it. <laughs> You were a, a single heterosexual man, man. You just, uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the advertising just went out. Women are just, uh, loving that one. Uh, what well, is also, I remember Nas, one of my favorite rappers, he said, you know, the way that a man's heart is through his stomach. So, you know, so what's your happiest, guiltiest pleasure? <laughs> this <laughs> ruffles potato chips, <laughs> ruffles potato chips. Okay. Onion. Those ones come to mind. Kit Kat bars. Um, but on, uh, aside from food and chocolate, um, I'm not actually a big chocolate fan, but lately, um, guilty pleasure is like, this is going to sound weird, but like, I love creating content. You know, if I could just not have to actual do things to earn money, I would just love to edit sledge hockey videos, um, research, create content calendars, make, I don't know. I just love writing I just love being creative through content and storytelling. And that's honestly a guilty pleasure. It keeps me awake at night. Nice. Kevin, I want to thank you for joining us today. You're such an inspiration. You have such an incredible story. And thank you for sharing it with us today. Thanks so much for having me on, Mike. I appreciate it. When I hear Kevin's story, I can't help but think, man, I'm whiny. It really puts things in perspective. When I find myself complaining about something like my weight or that I'm tired or how busy work is, I just need to remind myself that I've never been in a motocross accident that left me an incomplete paraplegic. That isn't to discount my lived experience, but it is to keep things real. Life is hard for the best of us. For some people, it's even harder. We don't live on planet fair. Kevin's story is so inspirational to me because through some of the toughest odds, he didn't give up. He wasn't willing to lie down and surrender. That is strength. I want to mention that if you'd like to learn more about the sledge hockey experience, you can visit playsledgehockey.com. I'd highly encourage you to do so. It's a pretty great experience. That's all for today's episode of Talking to Canadians. 
thanks for listening and thank you to my guest Kevin Rempel for sharing his story. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast through your favorite podcatcher so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to stay up to date with everything CCDI is up to by visiting our website at ccdi.ca. Thanks again, and I'll be talking to you again soon, Canada.